I don't know what it feels like out there, but up here there is actual heat blowing, so I might burst into flames. The waters of baptism were my only refreshment. Uh, This morning we'll continue in John's Gospel. We'll move on to the second chapter as the narrative continues. We started last week with Jesus gathering the first pieces of His renewed and redeemed church, taking people from a church that was wayward but expectant. And we talked about Jesus remaking humanity after His image and doing it collectively. And so now we'll start to see what it looks like for them to live together. Little Christians, this morning as we go through our passage and as you listen to the sermon, you probably know this, the story is about something that Jesus does for us, but here's what I want you to pay attention to. This story is not primarily about what it looks like or how Jesus keeps us out of judgment. That is something Jesus does for us. That is not primarily what we have in this story. We have Him doing something different for us and with us in this story. I want you to see if you can figure out what that is. Not that the first one isn't true, but in this story, what is John telling us that Jesus does for us as His people? This is the first of Jesus' signs, and so we read the story expectantly, hoping to see a glimpse of His glory and to hear His good news. John 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw out some water and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. His disciples believed in him. You join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us Jesus the Son as the eternal Word made flesh to come and remake us, to come and restore us. And we ask now that as we read Your Word and consider its goodness, would You give us ears to hear the good news held out to us? Would You give us eyes to see the beauty of Jesus and all that He is and all that He does for us as Your people? Father, we confess to you that our hearts are dull and fickle, and at times we do not believe in Jesus the way we should. We do not rest and celebrate in him the way we should. You have given these signs that your 
people, his disciples, would believe in him and celebrate more fully. So would you do that work in us by your spirit this morning? We ask all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Last week we wrapped up chapter 1. And right near the end, one verse away from the end of the chapter, Jesus told Nathaniel, look, it's great that you believe in me because I was able to tell you I saw you sitting under the fig tree and reading. But if you are impressed by that, you're going to see greater things than these. And that set us up for this cycle of Jesus' signs, Jesus' miracles that run throughout the book. Jesus will perform signs and His disciples will believe in Him. And as readers, we're supposed to do the same thing. We're supposed to read about the majesty of the wonder. We're supposed to be impressed with it and we're supposed to believe in Him. And so in a sense, this starts our journey through the greater things than these. We also saw last week Jesus on the hunt, so to speak, for worshipers. He was out walking through creation as the recreator, and he was gathering worshipers for himself, calling disciples, drawing them to himself, and telling them to come along with him and see. See what I am like. See what the Father has in store for you. See what it means to belong to me and to be redeemed by me. And so we saw him on the hunt, and we'll actually see that continue through the book. We'll see it in the next chapter in his discussion with Nicodemus, a Pharisee. And we'll see it in the next chapter when he sits at the well with a Samaritan woman and tells her the Father seeks true worshipers. So this theme of Jesus on the hunt will continue through the book. But in this chapter, we have the beautiful picture of not so much Jesus on the hunt... If I could use a different metaphor, here we have Jesus and His redemptive courtship for His bride. We have Jesus with His church courting her. In those ways, in moving from His discussion with Nathaniel that greater things will happen and now starting to see them happen, and in moving from His hunt for worshipers to more affectionate and beautiful courtship. Between chapters 1 and 2, we have moved from the less impressive to the more impressive, in a way. Except, except this one thing. We read this story, and we know what's coming, and it impresses us from the beginning. Oh, here it comes. This is where Jesus turns the water into wine. This is a good one. But the story starts out with Jesus on his way to a family wedding. This is the stuff you dread on Saturday afternoons. I mean that in all seriousness. All joking aside, you should start reading the chapter and know this is what it looks like for Jesus, the Word made flesh, to be man with us and for us in mundane things. His mom was invited to a wedding. He was invited to a wedding. His friends were there. The story is supposed to start out mundane. This is Jesus 
certainly at a celebratory occasion, but in kind of everyday stuff. Everybody gets married. All their kids get married. This is not uncommon. We tend, to, we tend to picture Jesus in the Gospels a little bit like Joe Bluth from Arrested Development, walking around dressed in flashy clothes with a theme song by Europe, The Final Countdown, pulling doves out of jackets, making bursts of flame come out of his wrist, performing illusions to wow people, We picture Jesus walking through the hillside like a Vegas act. A religious Vegas act, so maybe he's from Branson. But a Vegas act. (laughs) But a Vegas act all the same. All of the production, all the smoke and mirrors and lights and soundtracks. You were supposed to buy tickets, we think, for an audience with him. You were supposed to stand in line like people do for an iPhone just to get a glimpse of him. And he's just a random guy at a random wedding in this story, at least at the beginning. And notice, very few people figure out what actually happened. By the time you get to the end of the story, his disciples believe in him. The servants know what he did. His mother asked for help. But the discussion moves on away from Jesus. The master of the feast talks to the bridegroom. They hold a conference about catering plans. And the wedding just moves on. There was no aha moment where the whole wedding turned and looked at him. He was not the DJ. He was not the entertainment at the wedding. People still celebrated the couple. His disciples knew what happened and they believed, but everyone else just went about their business. This is what it looks like for Jesus to really be man with us, to go day to day about the things that we do, that you do with your family. He just does them with glory. He just does them redemptively. It's a major difference to be sure, but the stuff He does... The things he attends are the same. You actually need that if you're going to understand the scene that we have in front of us. If you're going to understand this story, you have to see it a little bit like a wedding guest that didn't know this was going on. Maybe you overheard the discussion with Mary. Maybe they weren't at your table. Maybe you just met them. But Mary asks him for help And we hear his answer like he's disinterested. This is not an uncommon way for Jewish men and women to talk to each other. This isn't disrespectful. It's not long. It is somewhat short. But he's not scolding her. He's not upset with her. This is the way in Hebrew culture you would ask someone how is that any of my business? Essentially, I'm just here for the wedding. My hour has not yet come. I'm not supposed to display my glory like this. Am I? But however he says it, we normally read it like he scolded her and frowned and put, her, put his finger in her face. 
However he said it, she expected that he was going to help. The next thing she says is do whatever he says. She turns to the servants, do whatever he's about to tell you to do. She knows he intends to help her, so he must have at least said it with a smile. There must have been some affectionate sarcasm in it. It's almost like he laughs a little bit and says, how is this any of my business? My, My hour has not come yet, has it? And she knows by the way he says it, it's on its way. No, this isn't the cross and resurrection yet. But he says it in such a way that she knows something important is about to happen. Something significant and out of the ordinary. He is about to fix this wine problem at the wedding. And so Jesus turns to the water jars, there for the Jewish rites of purification. And don't let the symbolism slip past you. He turns to vessels that are there so that people can purify themselves. And he takes purification and he turns it into rejoicing. He fills these water jars with the wine of celebration. Where you're supposed to wash your filth now becomes the cause of dancing and singing. And so he turns to these six stone water jars, very large water jars, and he makes roughly 120 gallons of wine. He makes 600 bottles of wine. He makes cases and cases of wine, and not wine from Sam's. This isn't a statement about the volume to let us know he got a good deal at Costco. This is not Jesus got it in bulk, so don't worry about it. He made the good stuff. He took these enormous stone jars that stood as a constant witness. You have to be purified. You have to come here and wash yourself constantly. He took that and all of its enormity, that ominous, indicting declaration that sat at a wedding reminding everyone of their impurity. And he filled it with celebration. Ben Haley is the RUF pastor at A&M, and I heard him reference this passage. He wasn't preaching on it. He made a passing reference to it, talking about Jesus and his glory. And he said, if my wife and I go to a party or a housewarming, or someone has us over for dinner, we take a bottle of wine, the message is simple, thank you for having us at your party. And if you show up at the same occasion with a case of wine, the message is simple, I like to party. (laughs) But if you show up with 50 cases of the best wine anyone has ever had, The message you send is, I am the party. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is telling people who are already celebrating, when their celebration runs out, that He is fuller, He is better 
He is unending celebration. And it's not cheap. He's the good stuff. His celebration will not run out. His celebration will not be found lacking in its quality. This is the kind of celebration you savor, but you don't have to savor it because it's in short supply. You savor it because it's so wonderful. You want to enjoy every bit of it, and you have the privilege of knowing it will never end. That is why this is the first of Jesus' signs. I was tempted when I was putting together this sermon to actually read through the whole chapter of John 2 and put these two stories together for you. And John does it this way. He follows the calling of the disciples with the wedding in Cana, and he moves straight to the cleansing of the temple. So in chapter 2, what you have is this story that runs from gathering the church to proclaiming to the church that you are its celebration to preaching one more sermon with a whip to show that His cleansing is tied to His celebration. He replaces the Jewish rites of purification with celebration and He comes back around later, John does, comes back around later to say Jesus is not unconcerned about purification. He was not disinterested with purification. He was real purification too. But before we get to that, you need to know that His purification is always driving you to full celebration. Before you watch Him drive people and animals out of a temple and you blush a little bit because you're embarrassed, you need to know His aim is always at this kind of rejoicing. And so John makes less of a point than I have even on the volume of the wine. And he spends the bulk of his time on the quality of the wine. And if you've spent any time reading Scripture, choice and good wine should conjure all kinds of images for you. John is a master at doing this in his gospel. He writes these stories that are pregnant, so to speak. They have many layers, and they're supposed to pull in lots of images all at once so you kind of get overwhelmed and flooded by them, not so that you shut down, but it's like walking through a museum and seeing the works of a single artist that tie together and seeing the way he's pulled themes together from one work to the next so that every time you see one painting or one sculpture... You're reminded of the beauty of his other work. You're reminded of the way he has developed this theme, this idea, over his career. And John does that all through his gospel. He uses all kinds of irony. He uses all kinds of sarcasm and double meaning so that the stories become pregnant, not just with imagery inside the gospel, but from the whole canon of Scripture. And when you get to the good and choice wine, you're supposed to hear a flood of wine imagery. Inside his gospel, you should hear the tie between Passover and communion. In fact, the very next next section for us, I think it's in verse 13, 
before we get to cleansing the temple, just a few days after this, John tells us it's around the time of Passover. So Jesus makes wine near the Passover when they traditionally drank wine to celebrate God's deliverance. And in John 6, when he feeds the 5,000 and then circles back to proclaim to them that he is the bread of life who really descends from heaven and nourishes them, John tells us again that all happened around Passover. So you keep hearing these echoes through his gospel. Jesus is the real Passover. Jesus is filling up all the signs and all the symbols that went with Passover, all the shadows finally find their reality and substance. If you were nourished by manna in the wilderness, you were really nourished by Jesus, your Passover, the bread of life. If you celebrated God's goodness as you celebrate Passover year after year, Jesus and His celebration are much fuller and much better. And He is the Passover celebration where you rejoice at what redemption has done for you. You can't escape the imagery from the rest of Scripture. Wisdom in Proverbs 9 is portrayed as a wise, temperate, and beautiful woman who sets a table with her own hard work to feed the simple and make them wise as well. And she feeds them with her bread and her choice wine. We have this story, we have this sign in the context of a wedding. You cannot help but hear the refrain through the prophets in Isaiah 54 and Jeremiah 3, Jeremiah 31, and Ezekiel 16, the whole book of Hosea, that God is the bridegroom of His people. You know Ephesians 5. You can't help but hear Ephesians 5. Jesus shows up at this wedding. He doesn't hijack it, but for His disciples, He says, I am the real bridegroom. The bridegroom, notice, was supposed to be in charge of serving the wine. The bridegroom was in charge of the quality of the wine. And by serving the better wine, in His own sovereign timing, Jesus says, I am the better and real bridegroom of My people. And you should hear an echo of creation. I've said it every week. You're tired of hearing it. Indulge me just a little longer. I made the case through chapter 1 that you could hear echoes of the creation account. You could hear echoes of Genesis 1 all through John 1. And now we get to John 2. And you should hear echoes of Genesis 2. Remember when God made humanity. I said last week the creation was not good and fulfilling for its purpose until Adam wasn't alone. So so God gave Adam a bride. And last week we got to see Jesus starting to pursue His bride. And here we see the courtship set in a wedding where He proclaims Himself the bridegroom. And it's all tied in together with this idea of Jesus coming in as the incarnate recreator. He is remaking humanity and He is remaking His church. And He's he's doing it by preparing Himself a bride. 
when his disciples saw what he did, they surely would have heard echoes of the Messianic era. Not just the work of the Messiah, but everything the Messiah carries with him out of the prophets. Isaiah 25, Isaiah says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all the peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away every tear from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. In Amos 9, Amos says, In that day I will raise up the tent of David that has fallen, repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, and who does this. The Lord declares, Behold, the days are coming. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. In Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah says, For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over grain and the wine and the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. And their life will be like a watered garden, and they will languish no more. Then all the young women will rejoice and dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy." I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. It took me 15 sentences quoted from three different prophets to say it. It took Jesus three sentences to some servants and six stone water jugs to say... I am the Lord who comes and turns your sorrow, the sorrowful declaration that you need purification because you are impure in yourself. I am the Lord who comes to turn your sorrow, the sorrow that you are wayward and faithless as a bride. I am the Lord who comes to you because you are incomplete and have no celebration on your own. And I fill all of these things up I am your purification. I am your celebration. I am the Messiah who turns your sorrow into joy, your weeping into rejoicing, because I'm the groom who has never stopped loving you. And I don't redeem you to hold it over your head. I redeem you to celebrate over you. You should hear an echo of Jesus' voice in this story, and every time you're reminded of His redemption... Not to be crass about it, but if I could summarize this whole story, I would do it in these words. Every time Jesus calls to your memory that you have been redeemed out of all of that sorrow and into all of His joy, you should see Him raise His glass. You should hear Him say, I'll drink to that. 
the wine of my provision, the wine of my rejoicing over you. I have redeemed you from all of these things so that we can celebrate together. To be remade, to be drawn out of the curse isn't just mechanical. It isn't just abstractly restorative, as abstract as that phrase is. It's a celebration. It's a wedding feast. So that's the sermon that Jesus preaches to His new disciples at this wedding. In six ominous stone jars filled with water turned into rejoicing. And John makes one quick reference to interpret for us what happened. This is the first of His signs, and Jesus did it at Cana in Galilee. Here He manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. For the sake of clarity, the way that they believed in Him was not by just agreeing He's able to do stuff like this. It was not just being impressed that Jesus can do some really cool stuff at parties if you'll let Him. It was not even we recognize and assent to the fact that Jesus must be the Lord of creation if He can do things like this. The way that it's said here, and at least a dozen other times in John's Gospel, the sense of it is, His disciples saw His glory and they entrusted themselves to Him. Medieval theologians used to talk about saving faith in three aspects, and the Reformers made much of this. They spent a lot of time on these three aspects and said all three were necessary. One was the content of your faith. Cognitively, what is the information that is believed in the Gospel? What is actually believed in substance about Jesus? The next one is assent, the actual exercise of ascending, assenting to the fact that it's true. You actually hear this, this aspect of it in our first baptismal vow. Do you acknowledge your covenant child's need? Yes, we assent and agree. But the third one was summarized in a Latin word, fiducia. It's a variation of fide, you know that word from sola fide, the Latin word for faith. But fiducia actually carries a different sense. It has this entrusting sense to it that you wholly rest on. You hand yourself over to Jesus for care. This goes beyond recognizing facts and even assenting to the fact that they're true. This goes into the, the aspect of faith that says, I have nowhere else to turn and I'm placing all of my bets on this one option. You actually get to hear this one in that last baptismal vow. Not only there, everywhere in our lives that we do anything like this, do you now unreservedly dedicate your son to God? Do you believe this gospel and trust this God so much that you will hang all of your hopes all of your children's hopes, all of your wife's hopes, and all of your friends' hopes, and the whole hopes of the church on this one thing, on this one person, will you actually rest all of those things and trust them to Jesus 
and not hedge your bets with anything else? Do you unreservedly dedicate? Do you hand them to Him and expect that He will take care of your child? Do you hand all of your anxieties, all of your temptations, all of your struggles, all of the sin, all of the guilt that you carry, do you hand all of those to Him? And that's normally the way we talk about it. Those things are true. That is that aspect of faith. In this story, when they see Jesus turn water into wine and declare all the things I've just said about Him, and they entrust themselves to Him, they entrust themselves to Him for a very specific purpose. This is the first of His signs. This is their first real introduction to the kind of stuff He values and the kinds of things that He will do with them. And they entrust themselves to Him to be their celebration. No matter what else happens, no matter what other difficulties they find, no matter what other calls of competing celebration they hear, whether it's sin or doubt, they will not run after other celebration because they have entrusted all of their joy to Jesus who said, I am your joy full and rich and sweet. So when we read this passage, when we hear about the first of Jesus' signs, this does manifest His glory. This does preach to us that He is the Lord over all creation. More than anything else, you should read this and laugh to yourself and smile because we're supposed to entrust ourselves to Jesus to be the fullness and the only source of our joy and celebration. This means even when we encounter pain because of Him, we know there's joy on the backside of it. When we find our own wine running out, we know that He will make more for us. When we find our energy and our strength and our love and our patience running thin at work or with children or in a marriage. We feel the weight of that testing and we entrust ourselves to Him to know that He is our celebration. It does not mean we don't encounter pain. It does not mean pain is not awful. It does not mean death and the curse have already been finally put away but it means belonging to Him. We have entrusted all of our celebration to Him, so we will wait. We will wait for Him to show us the glimpses of it in the midst of trial. We will wait for Him to overcome the curse around us and in us. We will celebrate all the things that He does the way that He does. Entrusting ourselves to Him that way means that we don't go out to steal celebration for ourselves outside of Him. And that's a struggle. And we do that all the time. And you know, when that happens, you can feel very acutely your need to be purified. When that happens, I want you to remember that Jesus took the vessels of purification and filled them with the wine of celebration.
Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of all creation, Jesus, who is the vine, from from whom you bring forth fruit and the wine of celebration. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us that you have given us Jesus the Son, not as some military redeemer, not to enroll us in a boot camp, to scourge and scold out of us all the things that are impure for the purpose of making us disciplined and joyless. You do discipline us as children, but your discipline and the goodness of your gospel are always aimed at full celebration, and we wait as a hopeful people, knowing that Jesus is the real bridegroom of his church and he will come again to gather us as the bride that he has prepared for himself, to enjoy the smile on his face when he sees us, to rest in his embrace to drink this wine new with Him in the kingdom, free from the curse, free from pain and death. And all along the way, You pull us toward that hope. You draw our hearts to that hope. And You give us glimpses of it. Would You help us? Would You give us the faith that entrusts, that enables us to entrust ourselves to Jesus, the source, the only source of real joy and celebration? you do these things for us by your grace, for the glory of your Son. Amen.